You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, streaming at 3cr.org.au, 3CR Digital, Podcasting or Audio On Demand. Interested in mental health issues? Then tune into Brainwaves every Wednesday at 5pm. Brainwaves is a peer-produced and presented program addressing issues that may affect you. 3CR, inclusive radio, making your voice heard. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR Digital Radio and online at 3cr.org.au. My name is Kirsty and from the Brainwaves team we have Steph and Zach. We are joined in the studio today with Rob Starry and Marco Mann, who will be discussing the medical versus criminal model of reducing the harm and costs to individuals, families and society caused by substance abuse and addictions. Rob is the principal of Starry Norton Halfen, which is the largest criminal law firm in Victoria. He is a leading Australian lawyer with over 35 years experience. Rob has been the recipient of awards too numerous to mention here. Suffice to say, Rob Starry has a passion for civil, democratic and human rights, and he is a champion of the underdog. Lawyer Mark O'Mann has worked with Rob for over a decade, much of that time as his personal assistant, and is currently based in the Sunshine office. Marco also cares passionately about social justice issues and gives some of his spare time to the Salvation Army. Hello, Rob Starry and Marco Mann, and welcome to Brainwaves. Good afternoon. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So, Rob, firstly, could you sh- uh, tell us a little bit about what exactly the War on Drugs is and how effective it's been? Well, um, the war on drugs has really been going for the last 50 years and it's probably the single biggest failure um, in the criminal justice system in the Western world in that period. Um, And so we've spent countless millions of dollars running a punitive model dealing with what is effectively a medical and social um, condition. Uh, In the midst of all of that, we've got people with vested interest um, that try and ensure that a prohibition drug model remains in place. That includes the private prison industry. That includes the big structures that are um, being set up around prohibition, policing, courts, lawyers. Uh, and so there are many vested financial interests that, set, that say we should continue to have this punitive model that's based on retribution rather than looking um, now as, as we are slowly doing looking at drug addiction as a medical and social issue in the same way, curiously, we do with alcohol, but not um, what's described as illicit drugs. So, Rob, on um, on that note about um, the prison system, could you share with us a little bit more about drug use in prison, crime recidivism and mortality and more morbidity rates on release? Yeah, well, we, we know, firstly, here's some interesting statistics. We know that it costs about 140000 per year to incarcerate an offender. Um, we know that um, there's a 40% prospect that within two years of release, they'll reoffend. that person will reoffend in such a serious way that they'll return to the prison system. So we know it's cost ineffective. We know that as a policy in dealing with particularly drug addiction, it's ineffective because people reoffend. So unless we deal um, in a systematic way with those issues, drug issues, mental health issues, um, then we know that people will simply be recycled through the prison system. And we've seen that in our own practice. Um, Ironically, 
uh, and and uh, I'm aggrieved by the fact that we haven't done enough about this personally and and within the legal profession um, that we have a, a, a recidivism recidivism rate that is so high that the whole system's based on people reoffending, mm. um, and so. Um, we know that uh, um, if a person has a drug addiction problem, there are underlying issues, whether it's family dysfunction, whether it's um, untreated psychiatric illness, whether it's um, uh, whether it's um, other factors that give rise to um, the mental health issues and drug addiction. Unless you deal with those issue, is, issues more effectively, people just end up back in the system. Mm. And so... Um, it's only really in recent times, and I'll, and I'll give you this interesting mm. statistic, but it's really only in the last 10 years now that we're adopting a, a different model of diversion. And curiously, um, the, uh, the model's been adopted um, because economic rationalists have said on a cost-effective basis, it's unjustifiable, it's, it's, it's unsustainable to incarcerate people as the way to deal with their drug addiction, particularly... The other statistic we know is that the prison system is really the repository for the mentally ill. We know about 50% of pr prisoners suffer um, uh, serious diagnosable mental illness. Uh, so um, we've failed, but um, there are at least some voices, still a bit in the minority, that say, "Well, we've got to we've got to deal with it differently." Mm -hmm. Even if even if you just look at it as a purely as a cost-effectiveness uh, issue. Yeah. And is that um, that model of diversion, is that what it was called that you mentioned? Yeah. What so, exactly is that? So there's a couple of models in place. We know that in um, uh, drug courts now operate within 50 different countries. Um, ironically, the first one was in the US, um, which is which is a, probably got the, uh, the single biggest um, failure in its system of pr prison systems. But... Uh, so drug court identifies that you've got to look at the person's background holistically. You can't simply in isolation say that, that a person who uses illicit drugs commits a criminal offence um, and therefore they need to be punished. It says that if, if you've got a serious problem with drug addiction, we need to look at housing issues, we need to look at mental health support, we need to look at family reconciliation, all the things that would put a person back on, if I can use the colloquial expression, the straight and narrow. Um, and those people that are eligible for a drug court um, are people who have had a long history um, in the court system who are otherwise facing imprisonment. They're diverted away from the prison system and they're monitored pretty stringently, um, but at least, um, at least their issues have been treated properly. So... Um to Marco, uh, as a lawyer working hands-on with these sorts of cases most days, how do you how do you see the association between drug use and crime? Well, um, my 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 view on it is that most people don't want to commit crimes if, if they didn't have to. Um, you've got people who are um, in the system um, on drugs for the past twenty years, and that's all they've ever known, without any support. Um, the funding from the government's always been at the um, tail end of it where they just incarcerate people that's their model of um you know dispensing justice um now as rob said with the drug courts they're given the support and um, the support system around them the housing and um, the mental health um, f um helping them find work um, and most importantly monitoring 
um, you know, the, the support that they need um, is there now with the drug court system. Um, there's more to be done. Um, it's at the point here now. And as Rob said, you know, there has to be some acknowledgement of these um, assistance to um, each individual. I'll give you, uh, if I may, just in, in the post, there's an interesting example in Liverpool. Um, this is more than 20 years ago. Um, the courts were dealing with heroin addicts who were really um, being social nuisances. They weren't committing serious crime in the sense of um, crimes against the person or violence. They were um, often uh, committing petty dishonesty offences, professional shoplifting, scamming, all the sorts of stuff that just is really a social nuisance. And um, they were committing those crimes simply because they needed to maintain their heroin addiction. They could not deal with it through short periods of imprisonment where they were detoxified and then come, come out from prison without any further treatment, causing massive disruption within their families, dislocation, housing issues, um, and, and all, all, all sorts of other um, uh, impacts upon particularly families. And so they said, what we should do, we should maintain those people so that they don't commit crime, they're not social nuisances, they otherwise don't cause any problems to the community, and we will maintain them on heroin rather than methadone. We'll maintain them on heroin and um, just to hold them uh, and we'll deal more, more systematically with their other issues. And so those people, firstly, there was a slow, because they'd been chronic users of heroin, um, but there was a slow reduction in their use of heroin. Um, they stopped committing crime. Their housing stabilised. Their families remained intact, um, and they could. Some of them could even go to work, even with a heroin addiction, but was simply just held. And so it showed um, that um, what was otherwise or previously um, quite a punitive model, where um, offenders or drug drug users and heroin users, particularly, were coming in and out and in and out and in and out of prison, that that just wasn't working. So they had to do something radical. And that was one of the first programs, uh, serious programs in, in the UK. As I said, they're now drug courts in 50 different countries. Uh, and um, what we need to, you know, what we've identified is that um, a model where people are temporarily removed from the community doesn't work. Um, as I say, as I said and repeatedly say, we've got to look at things much more holistically. Mm. And, and that means money. That means spending money, but again, on a cost-benefit analysis, if you think you're spending 140000 a year to incarcerate someone, mm. if you gave any individual 140000 a year, you will stabilise their housing um, and you will um, give them the, the equivalent of work um, certainty uh, in, or income certainty uh, and you will stop them reoffending. The current system doesn't stop people reoffending. Um, so you mentioned illicit drugs. Um, do you see any exceptions with, say, say marijuana? Are there other differences? Oh yeah, I think you, you, everything's called a drug of dependence, um, from from cannabis use to um, uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms to um, uh, manufactured uh, drugs such as methamphetamine and, and other drugs, everything's described as a drug of dependence. Um, and we know, uh, and it's been pretty much celebrated around the world, Canada, 
Portugal, other countries, they've decriminalised personal drug use. And that's the way we have to go. It's inevitable that we have to go that way. Um, we know, Marco and I do a lot of, a lot of work in the courts. We do um, 50 cases a week, so we do a lot of work. If you want to talk about crime that really poses a threat to the community, it's alcohol. Mm. It's not, not people who are using cannabis particularly um, or other drugs. Uh, it's alcohol that causes most violence. We know that, we know that statistically. Um, and particularly gratuitous violence and particularly domestic violence. So we know that that's the real problem. Yet we don't deal with that in the same way. We don't, we don't jail people who are drunk, thankfully. We try and treat them. So then would you say then that, the, um, that prison has become a default position then in, de in dealing with mental health problems, addiction and poverty in Victoria? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's outrageous really. Um, we know that the crime rate's dropping again, even though there's a whole raft of behaviour that we've criminalised. So there's, um, there's more things now that are in the statute books that are described as crimes. Um, but um, we think, if you think that there's 7,500 people in prison, um, one third of those 2,500 people are unconvicted prisoners. Most of those people are young drug addicts who just keep getting into trouble. Um, and if you um, continue to re-offend, uh, inevitably you'll have bail refused and then you'll go into the prison system. And what's happening is that many of those young people, particularly involved in minor or petty dishonesty offences, they go, they go to court, they've been in jail for two or three months. The crimes they've committed really don't warrant imprisonment. Uh, but the judges often will say, well, you know, you've done enough jail, I'm just going to release you. And when they're released back into the community without structure or support, mm -hmm. then they're vulnerable um, to going, to going um, back into a life of offending and returning to drug use. Uh, so the prisons, one-third unconvicted, pri unconvicted prisoners, um, a lot of people with mental health issues um, in, in prison, um, and we know that, you, that there's been a, if I can say this, the scourge of ice addiction, you know, um, that causes people to behave often in an erratic and unpredictable manner. Uh, and that causes a, a lot of fear within the community and, dare I say, with the courts. Um, so you mentioned drug courts and we, we now have drug courts in, in Victoria. Can you tell us what, what they are and how they work and are there people kind of yeah. stepping through the cracks? Um, well, Mark and I have often said this, every court should be a drug court, mm. but we've got two specific courts. The first model was set up in Dandenong in 2002, um, and to, to be eligible to go to that court, you had to live within a geographical catchment, and um, you had to um, be involved in serious crime, not petty crime, because... Um, it was de designed to divert the most serious offenders away, um, away from the, um, the criminal justice system. And then in March this year, the government expanded the program to Melbourne, and Melbourne has a much broader catchment area, everywhere from Port Melbourne to Parkville, um, the inner north, the inner um, east. Unfortunately, not in the western suburbs where we, where we do a lot of work. Um, but... Um, uh, the court, uh, again, as Marco said earlier, uh, deals with 
um, offenders who would otherwise receive a prison sentence. Um, the thing about the drug court is that um, it, it operates on a, a basis that you, you get a, a serious uh, a sentence of up to two years jail um, and that if you um, don't comply with the drug treatment order that the court imposes, then you um, run the risk of going back to prison. Now, there's some tolerance within the system. For instance, if you're involved in minor possessional use of drugs, then that doesn't necessarily catapult you back into the jail um, system. So that's that's good. There's a there's some latitude and some flexibility there, and um, but they don't allow um, any sex offenders into that program. And, you know, there might be good reason for that. But they also don't allow any violent offenders. Mm -hmm. And we know that a lot of people who've got drug addiction who are detoxifying or who, um, because of their drug use, behave in, a, in, as I said before, in an erratic or unpredictable way. They do commit violent crime, uh, but they're precluded from going into that program. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's a great advancement and it's acknowledgement that jail, as the you know, the primary sentencing consideration, it's an acknowledgement that that's been unsuccessful um, and that we, you know, again, just had to try something radical. Mm. So it kind of seems like there's a lot of, within this war on drugs, it's effectively a moralising um, approach to treating people with addiction problems, um, treating it as a personal choice. Um, however, you've mentioned kind of other countries that may use more of a medical model. Um, so we understand that this accepts more that a person's brain, um, you know, th that it's more out of their control. There are biological processes going on. Um, so what do you think is kind of the best way of um, conceptualising addiction and substance abuse? Yeah, well, I think with the advancement of medicine particularly, we do acknowledge that, that, that there are chemical imbalances and, and, and other um, factors that um, psychological and psychiatric factors um, that come into play and that are very, very important. Um, you look at Portugal, Portugal um, financially was on its knees. Uh, the, the economy um, 15 years ago, after the or around the time of the GFC, um, was in real, um, under real pressure. And the Portuguese government said, we cannot spend this enormous amount of money in corrections dealing with drug addicts, young drug addicts. And so they said, we've got, we, we just have to take, again, for economic reasons, we have to take a much more radical view of things. And so they said um, to their cohort of young, mainly young um, offenders, if you participate in programs, um, particularly for your personal drug use, um, and you're successful, then you won't go to prison. It's similar to the Victorian model, but um, with, a, with uh, I think, with a bit more latitude. Uh, if you involve yourself in entrepreneurial drug dealing or you're profiteering, then you'll go to jail. But if you're personal drug use, then uh, then you won't go to jail. And we'll treat it. We'll treat it medically. Um, from my own perspective, um, I, I think we should decriminalise all drug use. Um, people want to make a decision to use um, alcohol, cannabis, other substances, other hallucinogenics. Let them let them make that decision um, themselves. We shouldn't criminalise that behaviour. Uh, 
but let's provide resources to support them um, in every possible way. Uh, and um, that's my own my own view. I don't. I think that the prohibition model, even though we've clung onto it as hard as we can, you know, we've, I think I mentioned before um, outside the studio that uh, we know that um, the pr private prison industry engage uh, lobbyists. They've got pri they've got their own lobbyists to advocate against decriminalisation of drug use um, because the private prison industry is a big um, a big player in corrections in Victoria uh, and so they don't want to see um, people channeled away from the criminal justice system <coughs> excuse me um, they, they, they profiteer from it and uh, so I'd be saying well um, let's just decriminalise everything let's take the profit motive out of it because um, the war on drugs, you asked a question before the war on drugs, you know, who are the profiteers? You know, they're cartels, they're um, organised crime, uh, they've got, it, it um, enhances corruption within politicians. Uh, and it just seems to me that when we've tried that system and it's failed, mm. let's do something else. Um. So you mentioned earlier about you, you're kind of not a fan of, say, the methadone treat treatments. Um, is I don't know. Is there sort of like a human rights issues there in terms of people refusing treatment um, or the, or people who are coerced to engage in treatment? You know, do that does that yeah, affect I, outcomes? I, I, I don't have the sort of um, medical background to talk about the. Um, how good or bad um, methadone is, other than the fact that it's it's been a um, treatment program for many, many, many years, um, and, it, and it seems to me that um, in addressing addiction, it's not that good. Mm -hmm. um, that's just my experience, my anecdotal experience. I see the same people that I've seen 20 years ago who've been on methadone for 15 years, uh, and they stop using methadone and they go back on heroin. Yeah, it's replacing one drug with another, essentially. Um, mm. And they get zoned out and they can't go to work or they miss their court dates. Um, you know, it's it's really ineffective in one sense. Um, they need more support than just a methadone program. Mm. And just to wrap up, Marco, where could our listeners go to get more information, advice and help? Well, um, there's a number of um, places. Um, the local GP, um, Victoria Legal Aid, um, law firms such as ours and you know there's a community health centers yeah. mm. um, particularly I think yeah. and there are, there are other bigger agencies like um, uh, well there's Odyssey House there's all, all, all the um, community based programs uh, and then there are private providers uh, but community health centers are always a good start I think mm. well we have to say a huge thank you to lawyers Rob Starry and Marco Mann for taking the time out of their very busy days to inform the Brainwaves team and all our listeners at 3CR of ways we can ameliorate the crime rate and harm caused by substance abuse in our society. A podcast of this show will be available on the 3CR website, the Brainwaves website and iTunes. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thank you. Thank you. We just want to say a quick thank you to our Brainwaves member, Susie, who organised this whole show and put in so much effort, but unfortunately couldn't be with us today. Brainwaves will be back next Wednesday from 5 to 5.30pm. 5 
The show will be covering Movember, raising awareness of men's health. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.